This morning we're continuing with our study of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up at verse 25 of chapter 2 and working through to verse 29. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, you will have picked up, I'm sure, on the fact that we've got a print for you in a bulletin, but if you do have a Bible, uh, let me encourage you to follow along there. And uh, But before we go any further with any of that, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please come now and help us. And by your Holy Spirit, provide the illumination that will be necessary for us to make any sense whatsoever of what you are saying to us in this portion of your word. Cut through all of our defenses. And every barrier that we throw up in order to not hear what you are saying. Get behind our callousness underneath the shell that threatens to encase our often hard hearts. Cause your arrows of truth to find their mark in our hearts. That because of you are not made of stone but flesh and can be responsive to you. Please make it so this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. In this missionary introduction letter, as we are calling it, the Apostle Paul is trying to solicit the support of the Roman Church for his ongoing missionary endeavors very soon hoping to turn his attention to sort of the far western reaches of the then known world, setting his sights on Spain. As part of that process, I share the conviction of others that Paul wanted to relocate his base of operations from Antioch to Rome. And in order to do that, he needed to introduce himself, really, to the majority of people in the Roman church who did not know him. He knew some of them. But most of them he did not know. He wanted to give them some assurances that he was the right guy for the job. That he did indeed bear the marks of an apostle. He was the real thing. And that thus he ought to be supported. And he ought to be honored. And he ought to be respected amongst them. And so with that goal in mind, he writes this letter. And Paul, among other things, in the writing of this letter is eager to share with the Romans a kind of summary statement of his theological position on some fundamentals of the faith. And Paul does this, I believe, because if he wants them to have confidence in him as a preacher, a teacher of the gospel, then he needs to take some time to explain to them just what his gospel consists of. That is, what he has been telling people And will continue to tell people about themselves and about God and about Christ and about the cross and how all of that fits and works together. So that's what Paul proceeds to do in this letter. Now as we've seen before, but I don't mind repeating because I believe in repetition, but I, I want you to have the structure of this letter in your minds. But at the beginning of this letter, after some introductory remarks, Paul starts out with, as we've seen before, this very brief but dense thesis statement, this summary statement of the gospel where he talks about the gospel 
being the power of God for the salvation of everyone who will believe. And then he goes on to say how and why the gospel functions in that way. And the answer is because in it, or maybe by it, God bestows, and through it, He bestows an undeserved righteousness upon His sinful people, thereby making them right with Himself. At any rate, after that opening thesis statement, after giving his readers a kind of a foretaste of the good news, a tidbit of that, that he's going to expand upon later on in this letter, Paul then launches into this extended section where we still are, where he dishes out a lot of bad news, endeavoring to show why all people are in need of this righteousness that God freely provides. Namely, because all people are sinful and unrighteous and can't, in their own strength, do anything about it. And all this before a holy God who can neither endure nor ignore sin. And the result is that all people are left justly deserving of God's wrath, some of which is already being worked out in this world. We saw that in one of the passages. But the bulk of which, no doubt, will be made manifest later on whenever Christ does return. Now, in terms of the letter, here's how Paul has gone about showing the universal need for righteousness that exists for humanity. In chapter 1, 18 to 32, Paul kind of addresses humanity in a general way. Uh, Those who are Gentiles, uh, showing and describing in different ways their sin, their unrighteousness, what it looks like on them and in them and through them. And then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to a specific subset subgroup of humanity, the Jews, his own people. And Paul was quite eager for them to see how they too, at least as regards their standing before God, he wanted them to see that they were as needful as the Gentiles of this righteousness that only God could provide. And the reason Paul has to give uh, a special attention to the Jews is because... uh, all of this would have been pretty new territory for them. You see, they were used to think they were used to thinking about and speaking about the Gentiles as being sinful and beyond the reach of God's mercy and forgiveness. Indeed, given what we know of Jewish attitudes in that day, and even from what we know about what Paul was like before his conversion, it would not have been at all surprising to believe that any Jew that happened to be present as Paul's letter to the Romans was being read to the church, perhaps for the first time, uh, anyone pre- any Jew, Jewish person present would have been almost applauding Paul as they read what he wrote in one eighteen to 32 Because to their way of thinking, Paul was only saying the kinds of things that they had been saying themselves, the Jewish people, the things that they had believed for years about the Gentiles. And they would have been patting Paul on the back, so to speak. They would have been urging him on up through that point in the letter. But now Paul has kind of turned and he's faced the Jews, and now he's looking directly at them, so to speak, and he's saying to them things that, frankly, would have rocked their world. He's saying things that would have undermined their own fundamental understanding of who they were and how they stood before God. 
They weren't used to this kind of treatment and this sort of language or speech. They thought they had this thing all locked up. And they had it all nailed down. They were God's chosen covenant people after all. They were the recipients and subsequent custodians of the law of God. They'd been given the special signs and symbols that had set them apart as a people, like circumcision. So how could Paul, a fellow Jew, mind you, how could Paul, by saying these sorts of things, cause them to wonder about the value of any of God's good gifts to them? And so it would have been that Paul's words would have stirred up his Jewish readers. Certainly they would not have taken all of this lying down. They wouldn't have uh, easily acquiesced to Paul saying these things. They would have resisted him. Probably at every turn. They would have raised objections. They would have made comments and no doubt did. And you have to remember, this isn't the first time that Paul's done this kind of thing. This isn't the first time that he's said the things that he's writing in this letter, surely. Paul's been ministering for a while now. And he's had any number of encounters with the Jews on previous occasions. And so like any teacher who's taught the same course more than one time, if you've ever done that, Paul knows that when he gets to certain places, or he says certain things, he knows to expect certain questions. He knows to anticipate certain responses. He's been here before. And those anticipations shape the way that he writes. They are reflected in the things he says. So, for example, in our last study of this letter... And 2, 17 to 24, we looked at one response that Paul anticipated from his fellow Jews. One regarding the law of God. And specifically, the fact that because it had been entrusted to them, to the Jews, and not to anyone else, they, the Jewish people, felt clearly felt that this gave them kind of a leg up on others. They were leaning on this as something that gave them some kind of real advantage before God and that exempted them from any possibility of falling under the judgment of God. So in response to that, Paul said several things. He addressed them with regard to their pride over having the law. He asked them, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? In other words, he questioned their submission to the very law that they claimed to know so well but seemed to follow so seldom. Even further, Paul charged them with some of the most base and glaring of sins, including idolatry. And he did this to illustrate how little impact this law that they so treasured was having on their hearts and lives. And in the study prior to that last one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, Paul wrote about the impartiality of God's judgment and how that meant, among other things, that the Jews, despite their having the law, were not exempt from the judgment of God. It only meant 
that they would be judged differently than those who did not have the law in an external way and yet still had some knowledge of it through the fact of there being a creation of God. Some internal knowledge of it. And so again, Paul has already dealt with the unhelpful manner in which the Jews were thinking about themselves as possessors and custodians of the law of God and therefore as somehow being exempt from the judgment and wrath of God. And so having dealt with that, addressed that objection, that comment, that sort of perspective that he knew was out there when he was talking to them, uh, in the section before us this morning, Paul focuses on the other main thing that they were placing their confidence in, which was circumcision. And so he writes, For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what is Paul saying here? There's a lot more that we're going to get to, but I'm going to give you three things to focus on. Firstly, Paul says in verse 25 that circumcision indeed is of value. Why does he say that? Why does Paul say circumcision indeed is of value? He's saying that because that's the objection. Surely that's the objection or the comment that he's anticipating, that he knows he's got to deal with. Paul knows that his Jewish readers or listeners, now that he's kind of taken away their, and, and undermined their foolish confidence in, in uh, the fact that they possessed the law of God as somehow as some, that protected them from the, God's judgment, he's taken that away from them and he knows where they're going to go now. They're going to run to this other thing, their other refuge, this other thing that they put a lot of confidence and hope in, and that was the fact of their circumcision. They're bearing this covenant sign of circumcision. And in taking the Jews on in the area of circumcision, Paul essentially makes an argument similar to the one he made in the previous passage. He agrees with his imagined objector that yes, indeed, circumcision is of value. Of course, it's an important thing. It's a good thing. But he also qualifies his statements on this. He says circumcision certainly is of value if what? If you obey the law. It's the same argument he made when he was talking to them about their attitude toward and use of the law of God. Having the law is great if you obey this law that you take such pride in. Likewise, being circumcised is great if you obey the law. In other words, circumcision means something if you live in a way that shows you possess the reality, the substance to which the circumcision points and upon which it is based. 
But if you do not, if you ignore the law, if you show by your life that you're not concerned with the moral law of God or with God, period, then the value of your circumcision disappears. Because the value, the worth, the significance of circumcision is not to be found in the sign, the bare sign itself, but in the substance to which it points or represents. And what Paul is saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters here is that they may be relying on their circumcision as giving them some kind of spiritual advantage, but because they're not obeying the law, because that was not the pattern of their life, their circumcision is null and void. So that's the first thing he does to undercut, undermine their foolish dependence and confidence in this external ritual. The second thing I want you to say, and it's found in what Paul says in verses 26 to 27. Let me read it to you again. So if a man who is uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. What's going on with those verses? Well, as part of his goal, I think, of shaking, again, the Jews' foolish and misguided confidence in the mere external reality of their bearing the covenant sign of circumcision. The next thing that Paul does after connecting the value of circumcision to obeying the law is talk about how an uncircumcised person, in other words, a Gentile, might come to be regarded as if he were circumcised, if he kept the law. And if that were to be the case, then it would be a rebuke, wouldn't it? For those who were were circumcised and yet continued to break the law. Or not care about it. And see the effect. The effect of Paul's words about this. Would have been to diminish the significance of circumcision. Which in that day. And that time. In the eyes of the Jewish peoples. Had become quite overblown. In terms of its importance. If you read the literature in that day. You would see that it was lifted up. Uh, to uh, the, the value that they placed on their circumcision was almost at a mystical level. It's crazy. And that being the case, Paul's comments about Gentiles through law-keeping coming to be regarded as if they were circumcised was the functional equivalent of Paul saying, look, you think circumcision is, just, is all that, right? You think it's such a huge crucial, central thing. Let me tell you, here's how amazing it is. Here's how crucial it is. At the end of the day, it isn't even necessary. You're putting all this stock in it, I'm telling you, it isn't even necessary. Because there are Gentiles out there who've never been circumcised and yet show by their actions that actually they are. At least in the way that it matters. So with these two verses, Paul is again striking uh, their foolish confidence in circumcision by suggesting that it is not even a necessity since those that did not bear the sign might still be regarded as if they did. If they kept the law. Which then leads to the third thing. 
after talking about the conditions under which uh, circumcision matters and the way in which even physically uncircumcised Gentiles can come to be regarded as if they're among the circumcised, Paul then makes explicit in the last two verses what he's already implied. He says some things that at least to Jewish ears in his own day would have sounded like a radical redefinition of Jewishness, but which actually were simply a reminder of what had always been true and would have been found in their own scriptures if they had bothered to look. Listen again to verses 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Where's Paul getting this from? And the answer is from any number of places. You go to Ezekiel 36, I believe, 44, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 9, Deuteronomy 17, no, 10. And then Deuteronomy 30, you'll see how Paul's words in Romans are very much an echo of what Moses wrote many, many years before. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is promises after the exile, right? So if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that you will love the Lord your God. Moses' words are kind of now and not yet kind of words. They're looking forward to a time somewhere in the future God himself will circumcise. God will do it. Not a priest. God will circumcise the hearts of his people. And these words, it seems to me, clearly anticipate the new covenant blessings that were inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, including the blessing of the outpoured Spirit of God, which is evidenced at Pentecost. So you see what's going on is Paul's echoing of these realities in Romans 2 would have served to highlight the tragedy Right of the Jewish emphasis upon the bare, external, formal, physical sign of circumcision that completely ignored the deeper inward heart circumcision that had always been in view even from the earliest days of the Old Testament. In short, the Jews in Paul's day had lost the plot. 
They had a false confidence in the symbols of their faith. Like circumcision, while having no sense of the substance from which these symbols were meant to spring. In a word, they had settled. They'd settled for mere religious symbolism that was devoid of the substance to which the symbols pointed. It was bankrupt. It was powerless. For the Jews in Paul's day, circumcision really was about the external ritual and was not about the heart. They'd lost sight of that and it left the Jews as needy as the Gentiles for forgiveness and mercy and for a righteousness that was beyond their ability to demand or deserve or manufacture in their own power. So three different ways he's undermining their confidence in this external ritual, in this religious formal symbolism. So think about possible points of intersection between that passage and us. If there's anything that I think could be highlighted for us, it's, it's this. It is the danger of putting a false confidence in external things in symbols of the faith, and yet miss out on the substance of the things themselves. One guy talks about it like this. He says, Paul is not just speaking to those Jews in first century Palestine. He's speaking to us. We're not trusting any ritual adherence to the ceremonial code, things like circumcision. But you know what, he says? How often... Have you talked to a person who has no sign, no hint of real interest in God, no love for God, no apparent love for His Word, no obedience to His Word, no love for the people of God, no sign of the fruits of the Spirit, and yet you talk to them about spiritual things and what do you hear? Well, I walked the aisle, I signed a card, I made a decision. Isn't it how funny, he says, how it's always past tense? It could be something that happened 35 years before and nothing has happened since, and yet they remain absolutely assured. In other words, it's entirely possible for a person to be an unbeliever and yet at the same time feel completely assured that he or she is in good and right relationship with God all of which is based upon a foolish confidence in some external symbol or reality or practice or experience. Sometimes the thing they're trusting in is an external, in an external or formal religious way is the fact that they were baptized once or that they have regularly and or frequently partook of the Lord's Supper. Sometimes the thing they're trusting in is their adherence to certain practices, even good practices, like Bible reading or prayers or attendance at corporate worship. Sometimes the thing they're trusting in is some event, something that happened. Maybe they raised their hand once when a question was asked, a revival. They once had an emotional experience at a retreat or conference. 
All those things can be legitimate. They really can. They can be outward expressions of real inward realities, but they can also be sources of false and foolish confidence. If they're not springing from the reality of a genuine inward work of the Spirit of God, and with that, they can be a source of false and foolish confidence if they're not found to be part of a pattern of growing indicators of a spirit's abiding presence and work in a person's heart and life. That seems to be the expectation of the New Testament, generally speaking. All of which leads us to see that, among other things, this passage is a call to prayer, really. Because if the thing that, at the end of the day, distinguishes genuine spiritual experience from that which is merely external is a work of the Spirit in a person's heart. And the thing that we ought to be giving ourselves to, above all else, as believers, is prayer for God's Spirit to work. In all the ways that the Spirit does work. Bringing regeneration and spiritual life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Opening eyes to see what only the Spirit can make people see. Opening ears to hear what only the Spirit can enable a person to hear in words that otherwise lay dead on a page. Bringing about the internal change in heart and mind and perspective. Bringing about a necessary brokenness that only the Spirit could possibly affect. In all these ways and more, the Spirit can work it does work. And because that is the case. Because it's indeed the work of the Spirit that is the catalyst for all genuine spiritual change and growth. We ought to pray as if we believed it. And the last thing I'll say is really that the reality here of the Jews in Paul's day who on the basis of this kind of external religious formalism, they really thought they were okay. They really did. And had an adherence to certain rituals. And I think, how many funerals have I been to where that was played out before me where the case was made that external formalism is enough. Way too many. And that reality, I think, ought to motivate us to pray specifically for that. To pray about the people we know in our life right now, family, friends, colleagues, who this is what they have, an external formalism that's not coming from a work of the Spirit in the heart. It's checking boxes. But it's devoid of any power, reality, or substance. People that feel assured and confident, there's nothing else in their life that, that gives you any reason to believe that they should be.
nothing going with it other than the bare confidence in some external thing. And I think it, it ought to move us to pray and to open our mouths and to speak to people that maybe have been part of our life for a long time and maybe we've held our tongues too, too long in these situations. Pray that God would give us courage to speak and would use us. And maybe through that, maybe He would bring new life to these people and the external things would be replaced by an inward reality. How awesome would it be to be part of that, to be used by God, to see that happen, played out right in front of you. Let's pray. Father, I wasn't there when Paul wrote this letter, but I'd be willing to say with complete confidence that when he wrote these things about his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters, there was a tear in his eye because he knew what it was like to have the symbol but not the substance until you knocked him flat on his back. And the Savior that he hated became the Savior that he would die for. He knew what it was like Father, please give us the same kind of compulsion and compassion to reach out to those that we see and know who are caught in a religious formalism and externalism that they think is enough, that they think is real, but is far from the truth, far from the real thing. Give us the courage, Father, and the concern and the compassion. Give us the words and the example and the willingness to serve, whatever it takes, Father, to be used by you, to be vessels through which you might work to open people's eyes and ears and draw them to yourself. Father, would you give us that great privilege of seeing it happen, seeing you work, and enjoying the, the privilege of, the, of seeing that new life take hold, benefiting from just the boost, the confidence that that is, gives us a greater confidence even in you as we see that, as we see you using us and being willing to use us. Father, please make us more like our brother Paul in this regard. Please use us in the way that you surely used him. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
We'll now take up an offering for those that want to support the work of the church at this time. 